Hello, I'm Peter Van Dusen, and this is the Primetime Politics Podcast. On Primetime Politics tonight, after being slammed by the Auditor General for failing to meet its own deadline for ending all boil water advisories in First Nations communities, federal government unveils a new strategy today, a website, but with no new money and no new deadline. The Minister of Indigenous Services will be here to explain. Social Conservatives are making a push to get abortion policy on the agenda at the upcoming Conservative Party convention. A challenge to leader Aaron O'Toole as he tries to keep the party united focused on an upcoming election. And as the vaccine focus shifts to the provinces, new polling data on the performance of the premiers. Shachi Curl from the Angus Reid Institute will join me to discuss which leaders are up and which leaders are down. We'll begin tonight with a focus on drinking water in First Nations communities. The federal government is setting up a new website to track and display the progress in its efforts to lift all remaining long-term drinking water advisories in First Nations communities. The new strategy doesn't come with any new funding or a new deadline. The government has missed its own deadline of this month for ending all boil water advisories. And last month, the Auditor General slammed the federal government for the drinking water delays, she said, caused by outdated funding policies and a lack of legal protections. There remain 58 long-term drinking water advisories in 38 First Nations communities. Mark Miller is Canada's Minister of Indigenous Services. You see him there. Uh, Minister Miller, first of all, thanks for taking time to speak with me. I really appreciate it. Thank you. Pleasure. Listen, let's start. Uh, How will a website fulfill the government's promise to end all drinking water advisories in First Nations communities? Well, in in November, when we announced the additional $1.5 billion to communities to support them in the long-term asset stability of, of what is a critical infrastructure in their communities, um, we recognized that COVID had posed some, posed some challenges, but people were all also requiring detailed information as to what's happening in each community that remains on long-term water advisories. And I undertook the Canadians in November uh, to do that, making sure that we had as much... You know, I'm trying to get Canadians to see what I'm seeing, what our department is seeing, and the work that we're doing with communities. The difference we have sort of have today vis-a-vis the situation we had in 2015 is that now we have plans in place. We have 101 long-term water advisories lifted with with some to go, um, but we're really down to the short strokes. And people want to see what I see, what's going on in communities, what the plan is, most importantly, to lift those advisories. So that's the effort behind the website. Well, so what what precisely will we see that you see? What precisely does this website do? Most notably in, in... from a, from, a, from an aggregate perspective, we'll give a sense of what the commitment has, was been, uh, the life cycle of lifting a long-term water advisory, and then a community-by-community community breakdown of the ones that are remaining and the commitments we've made and the plan that they have in place in order to lift it. Um, there are absolutely challenges, but there's absolutely the commitment of the Government of Canada to get it done. And I'll be following up, and I'm following up with communities directly to give them that assurance, and, and much past the March 2021 deadline that we've all spoken so much about, but really for the long-term life cycle of an asset that is so critical to people's well-being. I'm I'm wondering, like, who it's for, who asked for it. Did First Nations communities want this? Um, Those communities know how bad their water is and how long it's taking to fix it. So who's it for? Who who needs to know this information? 
for all Canadians and all Indigenous peoples living in Canada. Uh, I celebrated today the 100th and the 101th uh, lift of two communities that have been fighting for so long to get clean water into their community. But they also, while it is a moment of great joy and pride for them, have expressed concern about uh, the remaining situation in Canada. And this is the best country in the world, yet we have that uh, we, we have the reality that we live with in terms of the remaining long-term water advisories. So any Canadian can look at it, the media can look at it, and people that are that, that have sometimes questioned the commitment can go there and see that each community has a plan and what the what the process it is in place to getting it lifted as quickly as possible. As you know, there have been calls from some quarters for the government to identify uh, best described, I suppose, as shoddy contractors who've worked on some of these projects, and that's been part of the problem. Why doesn't the website identify those contractors so they can be avoided? Yeah, and look, this is an ongoing discussion that we have, Peter. Um, this is uh, this has been a matter of some controversy in, in how contracting is done. Uh, the government of Canada, Indigenous Service Canada, doesn't impose uh, contractors on communities. Um, there is a whole process involved there. Uh, and so this is a delicate question. And first and foremost, investigating what's gone wrong. That was a, that was a demand that we, <clears throat> that we agreed to, mm -hmm. to look into as part of Niskandiga, which, which their water uh, challenges that we agreed to do in the fall. Uh, and we will continue to investigate those practices and work with communities to avoid uh, sharp practices and shoddy, shoddy craftsmanship. But, um, it, it, it is something that is of concern to me, um, but in terms of a, a, a blanket recommendation from the government of Canada as who to use and who not to use, that's something that is a little more delicate in nature uh, and has to be done with communities in question and their tendering process. Okay, so so each community will have its its own, as I understand it, own web, own web page on the, on the government site, a detailed plan and progress report. I mean, that's all good, but... What the Auditor General identified as the key problem is insufficient funding and a 30-year-old funding policy and a lack of a legal framework forcing the government to meet its obligations to fix the drinking water problem. So what's the plan to deal with those failings? Well, if you'll recall, Peter, we announced in November, and it's something that my team and I saw as we, we, uh, as we looked at what are the answers to, to providing that long-term stability for water assets in communities as we face the historic pandemic, and that, that was in part the funding amounts that were that were announced in November to address not only uh, the long-term needs of communities and operations and maintenance, but also what is an outdated formula that was funding only uh, water operators and operations from the government of Canada to the communities for 80 percent, leaving the communities to come up with a 20 percent, which they didn't necessarily have. And so we're fixing that. It's an outdated policy. We've recognized that, and we're going to get uh, we're getting rid of it. On the second point, on the legislative framework. Uh, recall the, the, the great controversy in and around the legislation that uh, former Prime Minister Harper put into place was decried as colonial uh, without the resources in place to lift the water advisories. Um, so that is a regulatory framework that needs to be fixed in conjunction with, with uh, Indigenous communities and we are doing so with the AFN and, 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 and rights holders. Uh, it is a bit of a longer process, but I don't want to leave Canadians with the impression that there is okay. a, a legal void. There isn't. There are standards to be upheld, and Indigenous Services Canada works with those communities to make sure that water is tested, clean, and safe for their community. All right. So the, as you know, I think many Canadians following this story know, uh, this March was the deadline for ending all these drinking water advisories. Uh, that deadline, we know, is going to come and go. Uh, you are, to be fair, make, making significant process. I think the number you said today is 63%. Uh, uh, of those uh, boil uh, water advisories been lifted now. W what's your new deadline for ending all of the remaining drinking water advisories? Well, Peter, it should be no shock to anyone that we've lost close to a 
construction season due to COVID. Um, we can't underestimate the impact that that may currently have on deadlines. There are a number of communities that are producing clean waters and are not in that 64% um, that, that you identified that are producing clean water and are ready to lift. But in the case of some of them, they're also ones that are that are um, on lockdown and um, they, they, they have to reorient their priorities. We'll work with them through this. Uh, I'm cautiously optimistic about how the course of the summer will go. Uh, and then Canadians will be able to see for themselves exactly what communities are remaining and when the plans are in place. Right, but do you believe by this time next year that this will be fixed? I believe this will be a much different conversation by that time. All right, I want to finish on one other area here. The chief of the James Smith the Cree Nation in Saskatchewan has said he's working on a deal to procure COVID-19 vaccine made by AstraZeneca uh, through a third party independent of the federal government's purchases. And under treaty rights, he'd have the federal government pay for it. AstraZeneca says any third party offers of its vaccine are probably not legitimate. So what are you doing about this? We've had many of conversations, Peter, with, uh, with, with, with the chief and leadership in question. Uh, and we'll continue to, to, to examine any legitimate submission that they have to, uh, to protect their people. Uh, my worry as Minister of Indigenous Services is the safety and well-being of Indigenous peoples. I need swore an oath to it. I, I know the chain of custody and the immense logistical work that Canada and all the machinery of government have put into place to ensure the integrity of that supply chain. It worries me tremendously. Uh, yes, fraud, uh, which is an element that of great concern, but more importantly, the health and safety of Canadians and imagine um, the compromise in that chain of custody that could occur uh, if there if there were uh, an illegitimate source getting into the country and how that would increase the hesitancy that um, that we've seen in, in, in Indigenous communities um, but indeed in all of Canada so um, we're scrutinizing it and we have eyes on it um, we do have the same questions that you've raised with respect to its legitimacy. All right uh, we'll continue to follow that story as well Indigenous Services Minister Mark Miller always good to talk to you thanks for your time tonight. Thank you, Peter. As leader, I was elected as someone that has a track record very clear on, on these issues with respect to rights, and I think they're very important. I'm pro-choice, and I've always stood for rights of Canadians. Well, that was Conservative leader Aaron O'Toole on Tuesday, repeating his pro-choice credentials in the face of attempts by some social conservatives in the party, not just to reopen the abortion debate, but to change the party's position on the issue. They're hoping to force a vote at the party's virtual convention and next week to change the party's constitution. The official party position is that it does not support abortion legislation. Social conservatives want to change that to make the party officially pro-life. There's also a push to have grassroots authority to fire MPs and to veto any decisions by party brass to control nominations. The internal challenges are part of a series of uh, negative distractions for the conservative leader these days. Jack Fonseca is the Director of Political Operations for Campaign Life Coalition. He joins me now. Mr. Fonseca, uh, first of all, thanks for your time today. Appreciate it. Yeah, you're welcome, Peter. Okay, let's talk about uh, the, the uh, constitutional amendments your organization is pushing for at the upcoming virtual convention. What change are you trying to make to the party's position on abortion? Well, it's very simple. Uh, and to take you back a little bit, the reason why we're doing it through the constitutional route is the uh, party did a bit of a dirty trick in uh, changing the rules uh, for this convention, uh, quite drastically different from what it did in the past. So uh, there's multiple stages in policy development that lead right. up to the policies that make it to convention for a vote. And in past conventions, at the EDA voting phase, the top 100 vote winning policies got to advance to convention for debate and discussion and a vote by delegates. Um, this time, seeing that, uh, you know, we believe, seeing that uh, 
social conservatives were a lot more engaged as delegates and there would likely be a, a, a higher number. They slashed the number of vote winning policies that were allowed to advance to convention from about 100 policies to a paltry 30. I was going to say it's down to around 30 now, right? Yeah. Yeah. So from 100 to 30. So they slashed it by 70 percent. And we believe fully that it was to suppress social conservative policies. Can can you Uh, tell me, I mean, can you tell me how, um, you know, um, has there been a concerted effort by social conservatives to be able, and I'm not sure it's the right word, to, to not so much, you know, I guess, stack the delegate representation, but uh, maybe that's what it is. Has there been a concerted effort to make sure social conservatives are more widely represented at this virtual convention? I think there was more engagement at this convention, uh, definitely. Uh, you know, we, we always encourage our supporters who are Conservative Party members to, uh, to attend convention. It's been easier, frankly, because of the lower price. So because it's a virtual convention, you don't have to pay for airfare and travel right. and hotels. That's the main reason why, uh, for social conservatives, uh, it's going to be a higher turnout this convention. And that, that's the primary reason. Okay. You, you know, so you're trying to change the party constitution to include anti-abortion language. You need 100 delegates, as I understand it, from 100 different ridings to force a vote on that proposed amendment. Do you think you have that support? Yeah, uh, so we we already submitted the constitutional amendment uh, um, that would expand the existing language, which is pretty good. I mean, there's a a principle in the Conservative Party uh, Constitution that says something to the effect of we respect the dignity and value of all human life. So we're just tacking on a few extra words. Uh, We respect the dignity and value of all human life from conception to natural death. So that will achieve the, uh, the, the goal of the policy that was rigged uh, for elimination by the party establishment, right. uh, by uh, be, you know, so. That what do you mean when you say when you when you say rigged by the party establishment? I mean the well, the, the current you know, poli- just, the current policy that the party has now was supported by delegates at the convention. Um, yeah, and it was narrowly it was it was almost uh, eliminated the last time. What right, I'm talking but, about but is it the wasn't. current. Yeah, but what I'm talking about was the current uh, EDA voting phase that I just described a moment ago, where the party slashed by 70% the number of policies that were allowed to advance the convention. And that was to suppress uh, that policy, the, de- the uh, policy to delete Article 70. So we're saying, okay, you, you've, uh, you've uh, rigged the system so that it can't make it to convention. We're going to use the constitutional process instead. So uh, Article 16.4 of the Constitution of the party allows that to be brought, to put to a vote if you have signatures from 100 okay. delegates what, what, uh, in 100 different writings. What if your amendment were to pass? How can you have a party with an anti-abortion constitution and a leader who vows he's pro-choice? Well, it, it just would be different, that's all. So the, the, uh, the constitution and, and the policy declaration is, uh, is something that belongs to the members, to the grassroots members, and it's supposed to reflect their values and principles. Right, but and, if you have uh, a leader who's pro-choice, if, if that were changed in the constitution, would you then expect members of parliament to be allowed to bring forward anti-abortion legislation and for the leader to allow that to happen? Well, we would hope it would nudge him in that direction for certain. Um, it's, it's, my understanding is it's not binding in that way at all. Um, it, it doesn't require, um, it, it doesn't compel the speech of the leader. It's, it's the principle that's, it's one of the principles right. that are contained in the Conservative Party. Right, but in uh, practical terms, you know, I know that in practical terms that if, if you were successful in passing this amendment, uh, you wouldn't just sort of end it there, would you? <laughs> one presumes you'd then campaign well, it, and push hard uh, to have that 
statement reflected in the Constitution show up in policy inside the party somewhere? Well, of course, we're, we, we would always do that. We would always push for, for pro-life uh, for pro-life principles and policies and legislation to be embraced. But uh, you can't force Aaron O'Toole to become pro-life if he believes in, uh, in killed, right. killing children before birth. Uh, what can you do about that? How, how do you think it helps the party's election chances to have this internal debate over abortion when uh, voters uh, are looking for the best choice to get them through a pandemic and rebuild the economy? I, I, think, I think the more that the Conservative Party can appeal to uh, social conservatives, to moral conservatives, uh, the people that typically stay home on election day because they see no moral difference between uh, the, the Justin Trudeau liberals who are rabidly pro-death, rabidly anti-family, and if they see a contrast where the Conservative Party actually uh, uh, shares their values or shares some of their values and there's a distinct difference, it actually helps right. the Conservatives. Uh, sorry, and are, we, we know that because, uh, if you just let me finish the yeah. point, we know that. I mean, just look at uh, Doug Ford and the, the Progressive Conservative Party of Ontario. I mean, he's gone way far left liberal now, but he ran the 2018 uh, uh, Ontario provincial election on a largely socially conservative platform. Uh, you know, he he uh, he was against uh, uh, an abortion bubble zone law. He was for repealing the radical sex ed curriculum. He he supported. Uh, he said he'd support legislation for parental uh, notification with minor children getting abortions. And he was awarded with a supermajority. Right, so are, it's okay. A let me ask issue. you: Are you are you are you are you suggesting? Are you saying that uh, if because you know the argument? Uh, the, the argument here is so if, if the policy doesn't change. Uh, social conservatives uh, uh, are a significant segment of the Conservative Party. Who else are they going to vote for? Are social conservatives suddenly going to leave because the policy doesn't change? Are you going to not vote conservative because the policy changes? Because the policy doesn't change? Um, well, we're, you know, that, that's not really the issue. I mean, uh, you know, it's more an but, issue But it is, of... the, Mr. Fonseca, it is the issue for some of the people around this political conversation who say, you know, we, we, we can... Uh, argue against this change to the Constitution because they're going to vote for us anyway. Social conservatives have nowhere else to go. No, they're going to vote conservative. True. But that's not true. Okay. But that's not true because they can stay home. And they do. When, when you get uh, a leader who attacks their values, who attacks their, uh, uh, the promises that, that they made previously, uh, they do have another choice and they use it in very large numbers, which is to stay home on election day. And, yeah. uh, and, and then the conservatives lose the election. So. Um, Aaron O'Toole should not be listening to the, to the people around him, the advisors who tell him, well, they got nowhere else to go, because that's simply not true. They can stay home. They can stay in bed on E-Day, and, and they will do that. What's, what's, let um, me ask you about the uh, Mr. O'Toole campaign on a promise of a big tent leadership, open to all voices. Um, you know, he, he's, there's lots of people talking about fractures in the caucus uh, over uh, where he's taking the party and, and some concern about what his election platform is actually going to be. Uh, what do you think of where Mr. O'Toole is now and that promise of big tent leadership? Uh, well, it hasn't materialized. He's gone uh, far left very quickly. Uh, so he, he, as you know, he, he only became leader because he benefited from the down-ballot votes of the pro-life Leslie Lewis and the pro-life uh, Derek Sloan. And uh, he, he appealed directly to social conservatives and contrasted himself with a better friend to social conservatives than Peter McKay. Mm. And uh, now he's done a terrible job. He has uh, expelled the most visible uh, uh, pro-life, pro-family MP in the caucus, uh, Derek Sloan, and uh, made a, a lot of other errors, a lot okay. of other missteps. Uh, to insult uh, uh, his socially conservative base. All right, Mr. So Fonseca this is a way for 
This is a way to make up for some of that too. So if the party enshrines in its constitution and its policies some some uh, some socially conservative values, it's a way for people to say, okay, this is this party still has something for me, and they'll go out and recruit their friends and neighbors to, to okay. uh, from their and their church members to go out and vote conservative in the next election. They'll pound in lawn signs, they'll donate, all those kinds of things. So it's okay. it's good for the party overall. All right. Uh, we'll watch how the debate unfolds. Thanks for your time tonight, and uh, we'll look forward to that virtual convention, and we'll have a lot of it covered right. here on CPAC. Thanks again. All right. Thank you. Well, the man leading Canada's vaccine rollout says he is confident the provinces are ready to ramp up their vaccinations. Major General Danny Fortain noted Canada will receive 8 million doses of vaccine by the end of this month and that he's been leading dry runs to ensure the provinces are good to go with accelerated vaccination plans. Yesterday, we conducted a rehearsal of the next phase, along with more than 180 participants from federal, provincial, territorial, Indigenous partners, as well as industry stakeholders. The goal was to validate the planning and infrastructure to handle the phase where we see larger quantities of vaccines and new vaccines being available, which is starting earlier than initially anticipated. So provinces have assured us that they're in a very good position to scale up. As you can see, Canada is getting ready uh, to go into the ramp up phase after a steep increase in vaccine availability. So Major General Fortin says the provinces are ready to ramp up vaccinations. Tomorrow is the one-year anniversary of the COVID-19 pandemic declaration from the World Health Organization. Premier of Ontario was asked today to reflect on what the past year has been like. It's been uh, quite, a, quite a challenge. Our team, we've not stopped. There isn't a day. And I'm being 100% frank with you, I have not taken a day off in the 365 days. And we're going to continue. Well, as the vaccine supply builds uh, against COVID-19 in this can in this country, the focus is now shifting to delivery of those shots across the country. And there's a lot of, uh, riding on the success or failure of those rollouts from provincial premiers. The Angus Reid Institute has been tracking the performance of the premiers so far, according to their provincial constituents. So how are they doing? Who's getting positive reviews and who's not so much? Shachi Curls, the president of the Angus Reid Institute. She joins me now. Uh, Shachi, good to see you again. Uh, thanks for taking time to speak with me. COVID-19 vaccinations, biggest thing on the plate of every premier these days. And already we're seeing some bumps in the vaccine delivery in some provinces with phone lines crashing, confusion over vaccine priority groups. What's on the line over the next few months for provincial leaders? So this is the per key performance indicator for premiers in the same way that it has been for Prime Minister Trudeau over the last two months. And of course, we've seen his uh, political approval really sink in the eyes of Canadians as Canada got tripped up over delayed delivery and confusion over how much and when and would we still make targets. All of that spotlight now moves to the premiers. And over the next two, three months for them, over the next quarter, this will be the issue, the one main issue that people in their own respective provinces are really gauging their performance on. Now, Canadians are mostly a generous people. We, we like to say that, but uh, they're not afraid to speak their mind when, when it comes to rating their political leaders. What have they been telling you about the performance of the premiers so far? And maybe the, let's start with the overall numbers. Who gets higher marks and who's struggling? 
Sure. So at, at the top of the leaderboard, so to speak, or, or receiving uh, higher approval ratings than others, you see uh, in BC, John Horgan, and in Quebec, uh, Francois Legault, uh, followed by Scott Moe in Saskatchewan. So, so they're sort of at the top of the heap. Then you've got a bunch that's sort of in the middle with Doug Ford. His numbers are still uh, at 50%, which, by the way, let's remember, pre-pandemic, You'd be popping champagne if you had 50% approval. Uh, now, not so much anymore uh, because everyone's managed to, to benefit at least for some period of time for what we call the pandemic bump, right? Everyone had this elevating effect on their numbers. Uh, so Doug Ford's there. You've got uh, Andrew Fury uh, in a in kind of a weird, exceptional place where as many people approve of him as disapprove of him. Uh, and then uh, more towards the back of the pack are the two premiers who have continued to really struggle uh, through uh, pandemic management, who have been uh, Brian Pallister and Jason Kenney. Rounding out those numbers is a brand new premier on the scene. That's uh, that's Premier Rankin in Nova Scotia. Right. The deal with him is that he has the lowest approval uh, ratings in the country, but that's because the vast the, the vast number of Nova Scotians actually don't have an opinion about him. Fifty uh, percent say they don't know him well enough to to gauge. Okay, why are the higher ranking premiers doing well? Let's drill down a little bit. What are they What are they doing that's earning them higher approval numbers? So it's really a combination of, I would say, style and circumstance. Uh, people are responding to them personally. In BC, you continue to see John Horgan through the ups and downs, the highs and lows. He, he tends to, to come off in a way that people are, uh, are, are okay with. And he's also uh, sort of, I think, affected a little bit by the halo that continues to surround uh, provincial health uh, Chief Provincial Health Officer Dr. Bonnie Henry in British Columbia, who's become something of a folk hero, not just at home, but but across the country. So he he gets a bit of that glow as well. Again, in, in Quebec, you've got Francois Legault, who despite, you know, issues with massive losses in long-term care facilities and real political problems, is liked and admired uh, by his constituents. In both cases, you also have an inability of the opposition parties provincially to break through. Uh, the BC Liberal Party in BC is uh, in, in tough spot. And uh, in Quebec, you're dealing with a number of other opposition parties who are sort of diffusing okay. that level of opposition. And what's causing the popularity problems for the lower ranking premiers? What are they facing? Well, particularly in Manitoba and Ontario, sorry, particularly in Manitoba and Alberta, you see two things happening. You see conservative right-leaning premiers who are really struggling with having to navigate walking the line between making public health a priority, so we need to shut things down, versus that more libertarian streak that they find among their support bases uh, who are saying, look, our economies are tanking, you've got to open it up. And that pressure is especially on Jason Kenney, who was elected on a promise to turn Alberta's economy around. That hasn't been happening. The pandemic isn't helping. Uh, Doug Ford in Ontario is also facing some of that squeeze. Yeah, tell me more about that. Uh, what's the challenge for Doug Ford? We've watched his numbers uh, sink uh, significantly over the last little while. What's happening? Well, first, they shot straight up 
and then they started to sink. I think it's really important to remember that Doug Ford personally is still more approved of, more popular than he was, uh, you know, this time before the pandemic started. So this time a year ago. So his numbers are trending in a downward direction, but he's still doing, he's still hanging in there. I think what I would say with Ford is, first of all, people really, you know, warmed up to his change in persona at the beginning of the pandemic. Uh, he went from being a, a combative politician to premier dad. People warmed up to that. But over time, we're seeing his numbers starting to decline, in part, again, because of that tension around uh, keep it locked down versus open it up and the many views around that, but also because he's also pursuing legislative agendas in Ontario that's really raising the ire of the universities, teachers, we saw the announcement around MZOs. All of those things also serve to uh, drag into the political mix. Less than a minute here, but uh, since I've got you with us, we've talked about the premiers. Um, let's talk, uh, looking at federal leaders, the prime minister still holds a lead over the conservatives and Aaron O'Toole. And, and so far, the conservative leader struggling to build support and facing uh, now unrest within his own party. Uh, why is Aaron O'Toole having traction trouble? He's uh, having traction trouble in part because there, there really is, I think, a, a lack of buy-in or trust on both sides of the base that, that he's trying to straddle. So you just mentioned that there are ranks uh, within his own party base that see him trying to move to the center. And they're saying, hey, dude, where are you going? We don't want you to go over there to the center. We want you to stay true blue like you promised to. Uh, in the meantime, he knows that the only growth for the party is to pivot to the centre, but right now the centre-left voter in Canada is looking at him and still feeling quite standoffish, and he has not had the opportunity to break through there. It's a little awkward. It's like he's molting. He's transitioning. We'll see where this goes. All right. Shachi Curl, always great to get your perspective. Thanks for uh, providing it again tonight. Take care. Thank you, Peter. And that's our time tonight for this edition of Primetime Politics. From all of us here at CPAC, I'm Peter Van Dusen. Thanks for watching.